Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Eden Mills Writers Festival and the Bookshelf are pleased to present Allison Wearing's award-winning one-woman show confessions of a fairy's daughter growing up with a gay dad this is happening at the e-bar in guelph on friday may 23rd based on her best-selling memoir wearing's compelling show tells the story of growing up with a gay father in the 1980s balancing intimacy history and downright hilarity this is a captivating tale of family life deliciously imperfect riotously challenging and full of life's great lessons in love. This all-ages licensed performance of Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter takes place at the E-Bar, located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, on Friday, May 23rd at 8 p.m. sharp. Tickets are now available at the Bookshelf Bookstore, also located at 41 Quebec Street, or online via ticketbreak.com. And for more information about the show, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. The E-Bar is not a fully accessible venue. Hi, this is Vish, and this is the 100th episode of my show. When I started this a year ago, I had just lost my job at CBC, where I'd been for five years, and I was kind of in a bad place, and I needed to prove something to myself. What exactly, I'm not sure. I know I was disappointed in some aspects of media culture, the ones that emphasize clickbait and lists and digestible chunks of sensationalism, while at the same time downplaying and devaluing thoughtfulness and in-depth conversation and analysis because that's what the numbers told them was working. Now, I wasn't the only one going through this malaise, but it felt that way some days. I felt kind of isolated. As a result of this confusing, angry state I was in, I, I really tried to assert some aspect of my personality into this show and into these interviews. I really tried to put myself out there while talking to people about themselves. It's a, I guess it's a common conceit in podcast culture, and I suppose I kind of glommed onto it. So if you're a fan of Stephen Malcolmus or Steve Albini or Steph Yates, you'd get to hear them talking about their work, sure, but you'd also have to hear about me, a guy who you might never have heard of or, or even care about in any way. Maybe I've always been this way as an interview, interviewer, I don't know, who knows? But this one, this whole trajectory, it's felt more primal or desperate somehow. I think I wanted revenge. I don't know. I don't know what I wanted. It it was all an experiment, and I'm not sure how it went or how it's going. I've spent a lot of time 
hearing myself talk to people over the past year and I don't really like me a lot of the time. I think I'm good at booking interesting guests. That's good. That's good, right? I seem to be able to get them to be open and revealing about their lives and their work. But I also take a long time to get to questions as I search for them in conversation. I interrupt people unnecessarily. Maybe I even ask dumb questions. Maybe I get things wrong. I try to make jokes and they don't always land. There's a good chance I might suck at this. But it's been necessary. It's all helpful and instructive for me. I want to be the best interviewer ever. And the more I hear how shitty I can be at it, or how effective I can be at it, the more I improve. It's all learning. I will say that I genuinely like my guests, and I want to thank them all for taking part in this with me. All the, all the, all the guests, all the publicists, all the labels, anyone who took a chance and, and let me talk to someone. I can't thank you enough. This has been the most creatively fulfilling and financially stressful year of my life. And yet I've never been prouder of my work while also wanting to walk away and do something entirely different, something stable. I have managed to cobble together some small salary over the past 12 months, and for that, I have to thank the Eden Mills Writers Festival, the Hillside Festival, James Keese and Exclaim Magazine, Josh Ostroff in Huffington Post, Canada, the folks at Ox TV, the AV Club, Pitchfork, CBC radio shows like The Next Chapter and Q, my colleagues at CBC Radio 3 who are still fighting the good fight, Herbnet and other labels who asked me to write bios, Fucked Up and the Long Winter crew for our work together and for pushing me to make a talk show that people seem to like, the Lanya Vanya Festival in Newfoundland, Nick Ferrio and the Peterborough Folk Festival, Alora Riverfest, Pop Montreal, the Halifax Pop Explosion. Man, I've been a lot of places in the last year. It's true. And anyone else, anyone else who's paid me some money to highlight and explore this culture that I love. I also want to thank Phil at Pizza Trocadero for supporting my family and I and for making great food. Phil's great. He's been very kind to me. We have a sponsorship here or whatever. I get free pizza. He gets an ad. It's fun. I also want to thank Ben Manette and The Bookshelf for believing in me and sticking to their own vision during trying times for themselves as a business. My wife, Michelle, has never heard one proper episode of this show. Not one. But she's heard me editing it, and, and she's been incredibly patient as I pursued something that I couldn't figure out how to monetize. I just could not figure it out. She knows that I need to do this, and she sacrificed her own time and, and took care of our son while someone or others stood me up for hours after we were supposed to have a conversation for this show. And for that and everything else, I want to thank Michelle. Mike Vasilaskis and I became friends when I worked at CBC Radio 3, he lives in New Brunswick, and he listened to my shows there, and he just decided to start Facebook pages and Twitter feeds for them as a fan, because he liked them. And he did the same thing for Creative Control, and I remain very touched and flattered that he's into what I'm doing and is so supportive and generous with his time. So thanks, Mike, and sorry I mispronounced your last name again. I really have no idea how to say your last name. It's There's too many vowels. It's confusing. I get a lot of compliments about the logo that I use for Creative Control. I'd like to thank... Uh, really gifted graphic designers Judd Haynes and, and Krista Power in St. John's, Newfoundland for making that for me. Uh, it means a lot. Thank you. And Brian Webb at CFRU is in many ways a primary force for this show. He asked me to do this and he told me it was necessary when I felt kind of abandoned and lost and just plain hopeless. So I, I can't thank Brian enough. I mean, really, in some ways, uh, you know, as I say, 
Bri is a primary force here. As it happens, I just got a full-time job in Guelph last week, and I'll be working at CFRU as their station manager. It's an exciting and unexpected opportunity for me, and it's going to affect this show somehow. I don't know how yet, but it's going to do something, because I won't be working from home and able to make podcasts whenever I want. And that's fine with me. I'm going to keep doing this, but maybe less so. Again, I don't know. My point here is I want to say thank you to you for listening to this show and sending me nice emails and following Creative Control on Twitter and Facebook and being part of something with me. It does really mean a lot. I, I just make this show in my house and I send it out into the world without much of an idea of who's hearing it or how it's doing. Sometimes you let me know and it really means a lot. So thank you. Back in mid-March, a fellow named Andrew Nathan Hood asked me if he could interview me because he was working on a book about Jim Guthrie, and I said, sure. I said, sure, why don't we actually do this live on CFRU and see what happens? Because I've got this CFRU version of this show that airs on Wednesdays at noon. So we ended up talking a lot about me and my life as it relates to Jim's, and I realized that when I met Jim, it was at a really formative period for me. And Jim himself really encouraged me with this show, and he listened to episodes, and he gave me helpful feedback. He's really, he's part of the show every week. He gave me some music to use in the promo you hear at the end of the show. Anyway, I didn't know what to do with this episode or when to post it until I saw this hundredth episode looming. You know, maybe I was subconsciously ripping off Mark Marin when he got Mike Birbiglia to interview him for a milestone episode of WTF. I don't even remember what number it was. Hundredth, two hundredth. He's done like 6,000 shows. I can't remember. Anyway, it certainly wasn't planned this way, but but yeah. So here's a here. But this is this is a guy interviewing me on my own show, and what I think might be one of the last times I spend so much time talking about myself during an interview. Things are changing for me, and that means they're going to change for Creative Control too. I hope so. I I, I hope everything gets better. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Creative Control with Bish Khan. Hello. How's it going? Hey, special show today. It's very unique. I got to tell you, it's unusual in many ways. Basically, I'm handing over my show to another guest who wants to interview me. Andrew Nathan Hood is on the program. He's writing a book about Jim Guthrie. He wanted some insights from people who know Jim Guthrie's music very well. And I guess that's why he's contacted me. So I have no idea what's going to happen here, but we're going to give it a shot. I've never given the reins to my show to someone else, least of all someone I trust as little as Andrew Nathan Hood, but we're going to give it a shot, as I say. So sit back and enjoy the show. I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. No one knows. So here we go. It's an experiment, right? It's an experiment. Hang on to your hats. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza. The pizza, personally... I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio. 
Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Andrew Nathan Hood is a resident of Guelph, Ontario. He's a novelist and writer, and he's working on a book for Invisible Publishing, part of their bibliophonic series, in which uh, these authors, they create little short biographies of key underrepresented artists, I suppose. And Andrew is working on a book on Guelph's own Jim Guthrie, and he's decided to be on the show today to talk to me about Jim Guthrie, and uh, I'm very happy to have him here. Andrew, Nathan Hood, how are you doing, buddy? I, I'm doing well. You're not so shocked that, that I would want to talk to you about this, are you? No, I'm not shocked at all. all I, right. I would think that it makes sense. I, I have uh, gone on the record to say I like Jim Guthrie, for sure. That's one thing. Um, so, yeah, it's not shocking, but, uh, you know, I'm always flattered. I'm flattered. I'm more flattered than shocked. It has more to do with your liking Jim Guthrie, though, too, right? Oh, I mean, okay. there's, there's, You certainly have, have, have roots in... in uh, Guelph scene that Jim was a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, uh, roots in the early Three Gut uh, days as a as a tour manager for the old uh, Royal City Band. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I'd say it's more. I'm more interested in in these things than whether we can talk about how you like Jim Guthrie or why you like Jim Guthrie. Well, but, uh, like I say, it's your show. I'm right. giving you creative control over creative control. You can do what uh, – I'm sorry I said that. That's a terrible way no, to No, that's, that's fine. But I, I would like you to uh, guide me, and I just thought it would be an interesting experiment for me to be on my own show and interviewing – being interviewed, rather. Well, it's interesting that we're doing it here at the uh, at the CFRU studios as well, because mm-hmm. CFRU plays a pretty uh, fundamental role in in this whole story, as near as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's talk about 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 the early days. Let's talk about a, a, a young Vishkana in uh, Cambridge, Ontario. Oh wow! Um, wow! 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 Uh, so you were in. So this goes back to a band, uh, Captain Copilot. That's right. Is that true? Yeah. 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 I was in a band called Captain Copilot with my friends. Uh, Steve Lamke and Dallas Worley. We were uh, born and raised in in Cambridge, Ontario, which is about a half hour outside of Guelph. And we went to, I guess we met in uh, high school. And like uh, lots of kids, liked music a lot and just started uh, trying to figure out how to do it ourselves, how to play. So we never, as far as I know, uh, actually Dallas and I were in a guitar class uh, in high school. And he was quite good. He was never in my group, actually. The group I was always in, we'd get sent to these like little private rooms to learn how to right. play technique and stuff. And I, we would just like, how do you play "Come as You Are"? Like we would just learn covers <laughs> and like not really learn the rudiments. And this was before YouTube, right? Where you could go oh, yeah. on and uh, yeah, yeah, this would be like I don't know, nineteen ninety four or something. So a few years before YouTube. Yeah, many. Yeah, a few years before really the advent of the internet. I right. still remember using the internet for the first time at Glenview Park Secondary School. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Dallas and I met, uh, and then through Dallas, I met Steve Lamke, and I met this guy Rob Powell, and 
my friend Dave Emmerich and my friend Rich Baxter and my friends Duncan and Aaron Foster, we all just like would try to play music just like by ourselves. Like yeah. uh, some of them are innately talented. Um, I wanted to play guitar, but never really had as much of an affinity for it as I did drums. So I bought uh, secondhand drum kits and uh, we just wailed away. I just particularly, I seemed to be okay at the drums. Right. Did you like hitting? I mean, talking to Nathan Lauer, who, you know, was giving me some background on why people become drummers. It seems yeah. to come out of an innate interest in hitting stuff. I would, uh, my parents, my mom's, a lot of my mom's family is in like the Scarborough okay. area. And hand to God, we seemed to go there every weekend as a kid. We would drive from Cambridge mm-hmm. to like Scarborough, Markham, these kinds of places. And... I would always try to insist that my parents play the tapes that I liked, which right. at the time were like the Beatles and U2 and In Excess and whatever. And I would just spend the trip drumming on my knees, like incessantly, mm-hmm. which apparently, and I don't know the full details, and my parents don't either because they're like super religious, but they can't explain anything. Like if I'm like, why can't I do that? Mm. Like you can't shave your head in according to them based on a religious thing okay and drumming we'll shave your head on the air today we could you've got a plan for later on again my parents are listening um it would not be advisable my i would spend time drumming on my knees and apparently this is um a bad omen it's like a it's almost like a funeral thing Hmm. funereal maybe i don't know what it means it either is a harbinger of death i don't know but apparently like any kind of rhythmic so i would just drum on my knees and from i honestly think that because I did that so often, every weekend, pretty yeah. much, with a Walkman on or whatever, I just developed a sense of rhythm. And so I, I remember the first drum kit I bought was with my friends Duncan and Aaron. We all wanted to play in a band, mm-hmm. and I just found like a secondhand kit, and I just we brought it in, and no one knew who was going to drum. Yeah. And it just seemed like I took to it. They were really great guitar players, but I just took to it. I could do the basic stuff pretty quickly. As a harbinger of doom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As some kind of Grim Reaper or something. <laughs> I was half decent at it. And then one of the other kits I bought, Dallas actually is involved in the story. I, My parents were very disapproving of everything, if you've not gathered that already. Like anything musical. All good parents. The shaving head thing, like yeah. the shaving your head and the drumming on your knees could just as easily have been a way to dissuade me from liking punk rock. Mm. Like when you think about yeah. it. They claimed it was a religious thing, but I actually am not sure. So I would often have to fudge the facts. Like I would tell, if, well, the first time I saw Super Chunk, yep. I told my parents I was going to Toronto to see the author Tom Robbins speak. <laughs> I don't the know very, which is worse. I don't, oh man, I love Super Chunk and I love Tom Robbins or I loved him at the time. Um, I don't follow him now. You know, when you, you're a kid. Absolutely, yeah. You're like this, and someone eventually is like, uh, have you read Kurt Vonnegut? Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I see where, I see what you're saying. Anyway, um, the second drum kit I got, I told my parents I was going to the library, <laughs> but in reality, Dallas and I were going to go to Kitchener, which is about a half hour away yeah. from Cambridge, to look at a church group was selling their old Tama drum kit. Okay. So Dallas, and I went to go pick up Dallas. I left. It was a Sunday. It's an odd time for the church to be doing business, by the way. I think. I don't know. Is that right? Uh, something goes on Sunday. Yeah, I, I, I don't think to, it's a good idea, yeah. but I... Pulled out of my subdivision, came to a left uh, stoplight, and was going left. There were two cars in front of me. It was to do to go left to go pick up Dallas, and I was so nervous about the lying. I'm not. Mm-hmm. A, I'm not a liar. Yeah. I'm like a terrible. Not only am I not a liar, I'm a terrible liar. I right. can't do it. Um, so I lied to my parents, 
And I was also just like absentmindedly looking at the directions to this place in Kitchener. And the van in front of me, which I couldn't see the light, but it crept up. Seemingly the light had. So I just accelerated, hit the van. The van hit the car in front of it. I caused a three-car minor fender Harbinger of doom. Look at exactly. That. And I got out of the car, and the guy in the van jumps out, and he's like, what were you doing, blah, blah, blah. Name, his name was Drinkwater, by the way. I found out. <laughs> his name was Drink, Edward Drinkwater. And then the guy in the front car hops out. Oh, my God. It's my principal, Mr. Bruce from oh, Glenview. Man. I think I saw this episode already or not. He comes out to the, and he's like, I know you don't, because I never got, yeah. I, I was like, you know, I wasn't a great kid, but I never got in trouble. He's like, uh, you're, you're a student, aren't you, of Glenview? And I'm like, yeah, Mr. Bruce. He's like, well, what, what were you thinking? What were you doing? And I go, well, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm flustered. And I, I say, I, I don't know. I, 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 was, I was looking at directions. I was reading. And he starts screaming at me, reading? You were reading, which is an odd thing yeah. for a teacher to be yelling at a student. Like, he should have been encouraging yeah. me, frankly. But in the days before you had a hands-free driving, there should have been map-free or direction-free yep. driving. Anyway, I went and picked up. There was a huge, like— Could not Dallas read the directions? Dallas and- wasn't there yet. I oh, he wasn't there yet. I, I hadn't see. picked okay. him up. I hadn't picked him up. I was so nervous. So I, I went to get Dallas, and I showed him. Like, there was a golf saw. Both cars had those bumper hitches. Hmm. You know, oh, like, man. for yeah. the oh, trailer. Yeah. It's saving grace. And, and, and because basically nothing really happened except to those bumper hitches. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe years later something happened and someone lost a boat. But <laughs> I, as far as I know, the integrity of the car was fine. The bumper hitches were bent. And I showed Dallas and there was a golf, sol- golf ball-sized ho- bump in my bumper. Like I hit the car pretty yeah. hard. And, and he was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. What, what do we do? Dallas, no offense to Dallas. He's not going to be helping that situation. <laughs> he just kind of goes, well, I don't know. I don't know. And I just, I say, well, let's just go get the drum kit. Go buy the drum kit. Come home. Tell dad. Not happy. Right. And Where were you planning on storing these drums? Ah, that's the other okay. thing. So we often played at Steve Lamke's house. Um, his parents were more uh, encouraging. Sure. I mean, they complained. In fact. Are they listening today as well? I don't know. They're somewhere outside of Cambridge. Okay. Maybe. So they were very encouraging. And they would let us practice in this little upstairs den kind of thing. And, you know, Steve and Dallas and I had our ups and downs. Like, I would play with them, and then I'd, we'd have, like, some kind of falling mm-hmm. out, and then they'd play with my friend Tyler Williams, who was a great drummer. Um, <clears throat> but her, uh, Steve's mom preferred my drumming to Tyler's. Oh. He was better than me. I think yeah. he hit harder or something. I don't know what it was, but he, I was a little more um, funkier, I guess. Like, I liked James Brown <laughs> right. a lot, and I, and I liked Fugazi a lot, and I liked kind of things that swung and... Tyler was more like Bonhamy, right. or Bonham swings, but he was just like really heavy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, <clears throat> we would practice there, and I would leave the kit there. But on occasion, I would bring it home, right? And I would tell my parents that it was Steve's brother's. Uh, Steve's brother was Ted Lamke. Mm-hmm. I would say, "Yeah, I'm borrowing my friend Ted's drum kit." Hmm. Now I had borrowed electric guitars from people before just right. to see if I liked it, so they didn't. They were suspicious. Hmm. But not completely, like, they didn't call me on it. They were like, all right, if you're borrowing a drum kit, that's weird. And then, like, one time, and so very disapproving, and one time I caught my dad playing the drum kit. Really? I came home, and he was, like, trying to play the drum kit. I think he was fascinated right. by it. yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of, and then, so we came to, I came to Guelph. Uh, Steve was younger than us. Dallas went to York. Um, and then, eventually, Dallas hated it at York and transferred to Guelph to do fine art here. And Steve came to do math, I think. I think it was math or physics. Math. Math? Physics. It was physics. I think Ted was in math. Anyway, so I can't remember. They haven't done anything with their degrees as far as Not I know. Not yet. Not yet, yeah. They're very brilliant guys, both of them. 
And uh, yeah, they came to Guelph and we started playing together again. And eventually we would start playing shows with Jim Guthrie and his various projects. Um, he played in a band called The Hubble. Did you play with Jim or Jim's with Jim's band? No, no, no. We sorry, our bands. Yeah, but I, I know that. Oh, Jim, with Jim. Jim, uh, from what I understand, Jim rarely played as Jim Guthrie. Yeah, he was in bands, but rarely played as that's, as uh, Jim. That's correct. I don't recall ever playing a show with the Jim like the quintet, right. Jim Guthrie quintet proper. We would play with like kind of affiliated mm-hmm. bands, and we also knew. Well, you know, coming into Guelph in like 1996, like the first show I ever played in Guelph was with an early band that Steve Dallas and I had called Die Octave. Okay. We played with a drum machine. That was me on drums, Dallas on bass, Steve on guitar and vocals. I might have sang too. I can't recall in that band. I don't think I did. I was too nervous. But I, we had a drum machine and the very first show we ever played in Guelph was I think in 96... At the Albion, mm-hmm. and it was my first. We cut, Ted. Is, Ted was in Guelph already. Ted, Steve's older brother, and they would have. He lived at a house, and I'll just say the address: Ten Ontario Street. Okay. And yeah. we, um, a bunch of people lived there, and they had basement shows. And this was a revelation. Like imagine coming out of high school. Well, I was going to ask you what uh, what was going on in Cambridge at the time. Were you guys playing? Was there a scene in Cambridge that you were? No, I mean there was a not not really a scene. We struggled really hard to play shows put mm-hmm. on play like put on shows in unconventional spaces right uh almost always shut down yeah almost always some conservative your parents would I show mean, up no 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 just on. like city people right. like cops like they just did not <clears throat> it was not an encouraging place to play mm-hmm. and you know i don't know if it was totally uh <clears throat> in retrospect just us feeling oppressed sure the way younger people always seem to feel oppressed yeah. you know but I, I do distinctly we would try to play and people would come and shut down the show and it just felt weird. But when we go to Guelph to see shows, mm-hmm. and they're in people's houses, yeah. which other than reading about that kind of phenomenon, because I would read a lot about folk music at that point, even um, as a kid, I just liked music history. Yeah. So I'd hear about people having shows in their houses, but this was like weird. Like uh, this band from the first, one of the first shows I saw at 10 Ontario was this band on Discord Records. Mm-hmm. They were called Blue Tip. And they were a really cool band. And they played in the basement to like, 30 people, 20, right. 25 people is crammed in there. But they were just like from Washington, D.C. area, and they just drove, you know. I, I mean, yeah. so the whole thing was just revelatory that someone would come and play a show, and it was such about the community. And, and the characters that kind of lived in that house had bands themselves, uh, bands like Holocrone, and uh, I can't recall what else was going on, but just like important bands to me. Mm-hmm. It was very influential. And then by the time I came to, to Guelph for school, I started hearing about this whole other Guelph scene. Right. So you were you were mostly uh, investigating the the <laughs> punk scene in Guelph, and were you? Was that your your main? Well, to me, the punk scene included Jim. Right. Anything anything where we were doing any anything where someone was doing something unusual mm-hmm. um, to a creative end to me was punk. Okay. It remains that way. Yeah, that's good. I don't. Uh, I don't. It's not a generic distinction for me. It's a. It's a outlook. It's an attitude, and so to me. And I mean that's not that wasn't true of all of us. Yeah. There were people within my what we'd call our hardcore or post hardcore scene that didn't like what Jim and Jim's band and right. Jim's bands like Chili and we'd often ask them. We'd 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 get Reg, gentleman Reg when he lived here would play mm-hmm. these shows with this crazy band from Chicago called V Reverse who were like incredibly intense. Or like a shot maker offshoot, Three Penny Opera would come and Chili would play with them. Yeah. And these bands were totally different than um, 
the, the punk bands that we had coming into town or the rock bands. Um, like I, the first weaker then show in Guelph was at UC 103 and there were a three piece with the Bonaducci's and somebody local opened and I can't recall who it was. But to me, all of that kind of interconnected, uh, multidisciplinary, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, that to me was punk and that w- w- felt, it really felt alive to me right. at that point. So Jim was part of, Jim and the people that around him that I became friends with, we kind of, our music was different, but we were all kind of doing the same right. thing. <clears throat> and that was important to me. And he was, it quickly, it, it, it occurred to me rather quickly that he was something of a figurehead here. Mm-hmm. He was uh, someone who had inspired others to do this stuff. Okay. Uh, uh, could, do you remember your realization? Uh, was there, uh, I don't know, It's um, uh, you, are you describing sort of that weird pirate ship where no one knows uh, who the captain is and then very slowly you begin to... Uh, to figure it out? Like, how did you come to understand that, that Jim Guthrie had done something special? Well, I talked about this on, on an earlier episode of this show. Jim, earlier this summer in like May or something, the Jim Guthrie band and I traveled to Washington, D.C. For um, uh, NPR. Yeah, yeah, Jim was asked to be on the Tiny Desk concert mm-hmm. series for NPR. So we drove down and I, Jim and I kind of talked about how we first met and how, um, to me, he seemed like kind of mysterious. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we just immediately became friends. Yeah. Like we told stories and we were laughing and within seconds, like mm-hmm. it just felt like we're pals. So I told that story. Um, and then, yeah, I kind of realized that he was making this music and, you know, was doing stuff at CFRU and recording people and just new stuff. He knew how right. to do things. I'm slightly hesitant to tell this story because it's a couple of years later after meeting him, because sometimes you take people for granted, you know, people play shows, Absolutely, so we yeah. just do stuff. I was seeing, I started seeing this very small woman. All right. Extremely tiny. Yeah. Um, she's like a small, but like very lovely seemingly at the time. You know, we're kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, very beautiful. Like I just... Was she exceptionally small? Was it like remarkable? Yeah, she was like a... She was... <laughs> yeah, she was... Dimin- right. She was a little... Well, you're also a taller guy as well. I'm tall. You're, that's yeah. why. I'm a yeah. giant freak and she was like a tiny little elfin. Right. M- mousy. Anyway... Very beautiful woman, and she, um, she, Jim at the time worked, there was a record store in town called Looney Tunes. Yep. And Jim worked there, and she, I think just before we started seeing each other, she went to see, she went to this, she'd heard this tape in her door, in her residence. Right. Of one of Jim's early tapes, and she went to Looney Tunes to buy it, and he was there, and Jim, because she was quite striking and had this allure, noticed her. Yeah. And then um, when he described the situation to me, I'm like, well, that's actually, I'm kind of, this. we have a thing. And I, and then, so then uh, weirdly, yeah, like this tiny, tiny little woman, like a dwarfish had this power over people. And, right. and, and I think her interest in Jim actually struck me mm-hmm. that, um, oh, like someone who just came to the city um, basically was is struck by this guy that I've right. been listening to for the last couple of years. So I think that um, based on her petite powers of persuasion, I <laughs> I realized that Jim, you know, might have some uh, transcendent power in hmm. his work. Seems weird, right? Yeah. But I mean, sometimes that's what it, it's just someone who, this happens all the time. Sometimes I get records in the mail and my wife will discover something. My now wife, who's 
also small, but right. more reasonably uh, height. She's human-sized. She's a <laughs> human-sized person. So she'll just, just – I'll like ah, – just sometimes you miss stuff. And that was an example of that. Like I, I think I was sort of oblivious to uh, Jim's reach. Right. Until someone else sort of said, like, no, this stuff's really good. Had he reached you at that point? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I was already, like, I'm a fan. I had some of the tapes. Okay. Um, as I say, we became friendly quickly. And we, in the music scene at the time, had a bit of a support network. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, you know, you you were patient with things you didn't understand or didn't like. Um, and you also saw the virtue in it because right. we felt like we were a team. So... Yeah, by that point. And then, like, around that time, that so th- this this situation happened. And I think that winter, or throughout that fall, maybe even, um, my band captain co-pilot with Stephen Dallas were just playing a lot. And right. we ended up playing a number of shows with Jim's bands. Not the Jim Guthrie band. Yeah. But, like, he was in a band called The Hubble, who we definitely played with a bunch of times. Um, the Hubble. When I talk about that very first show in Guelph at the Albion, the Hubble Bunk, as they were known at that time, played... And I was just totally blown away. Mm-hmm. Um, the fellow in the band, Kobe Dowdell, who I think is still in Guelph. I haven't seen him in a while. Masterful drummer. Yeah. And um, some and remarkable guy, actually, in, in many ways. Um, yeah, and the other key thing about that Albion show is, in terms of community stuff, there was a punk show planned and then a benefit for Oberg planned by, I think, Magali Mahar. Right. And they were planned for the same day. And when the promoters both realized it, instead of being like, well, we're just going to com- – we'll see what happens, <laughs> they they combined the show. So yeah. the bill was, like, weird. It was, like, Holocrone, Us, Venus Cures All, Plum Tree, and the Hubble Bunk, I yeah. think. It was a weird bill. Like, a really, like – but great. Like, again, revelatory. Yeah. Not only was, like, that kind of <clears throat> multifaceted music thing present, community was present. Yeah. People came together to do this thing. So Jim was at that, and 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 I saw, and I didn't meet him that night, but I know I think he was there. Um, but yeah, we were playing enough shows that we needed to record. And Jim and his pal and our my pal James Ogilvy were recording people at this at their house called the Rock Sack. It's one. Can we say one thirty four Ontario? I Street? guess we're just giving away all the landmarks. Sure. Well, they're all on Ontario Street, apparently. Yours to discover. Yeah, that's true. So we went. <laughs> And recorded with Jim, and uh, it was a learning experience for Jim, too, because that community that was here, when we got, when I got here, I was into kind of louder stuff. Right. And the the community at the time was into kind of challenging punk rock, but they didn't make that kind of, Jim kind of did, but they didn't make like super loud Mm -hmm. rock music. They, They made a... A more delicate, you know, what I guess at the time you would call lo-fi, kind right. of scrappy. And version. the Chicago influence certainly was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you're talking about bands like Tortoise and um, I don't know who else you would lump in with Chicago at that point. Chuck Berry's, like Chess Records. Mm-hmm. Ch- Chuck's not from. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, like Chicago, certainly um, John McIntyre and everything he did. Um, um, Sam Precop, these kinds of people definitely, like C and Cake, I, yeah. I think they definitely had an influence on on the Guelph people. Pavement uh, was a huge influence, I know that. And, you know, that's how we bonded, too. Like, we all, I was in high school just, like, infatuated with Pavement. Yeah. So, as much as I was playing in these pretty hard bands, 
I also had, like, my favorite band since I was four years old was the Beatles. Like, I remember <laughs> distinctly hearing that. And I know now, and maybe even then, um, it was like, yeah, amazing. Amazing discovery, the Beatles. Yeah, no, they, they write catchy little tunes, though. When you're, it was 1981, I was four years old, and my cousin played me a Beatles tape, and I was just immediately hooked. Yeah. So I, I don't know what to tell you. And once that happens... Um, you don't you know, have to apologize for liking the Beatles. I know, but I, and I, I just mean, like, I had this kind of pop framework. Right. Like, Dallas, I, I, not to reduce anyone, Steve and I had a real musical affinity and, and, and uh, liked stuff kind of like, I don't know, like Steve would introduce me to The Six, like yeah. Stephen Merritt's side project from the Magnetic Fields, and um, I would introduce him to, I don't know, whatever, Sabado. I mean, I think Steve turned me on to Super Chunk, too. Whereas Dallas was kind of more into, like, industrial, right. like, Nine Inch Nails and and kind of cartoony stuff, mm-hmm. uh, Pig Face and things like that. And I, I kind of listened to it, but I couldn't... I, anyway. Right. And then, yeah, by the time I got to, to hanging out with, like, Justin Station here and James Ogilvie and Jim, you know, these are, these are just people that were around, and we just were, like, bonding over the Velvet Underground yeah. and Pavement and... Sebado or whatever, like kind of indie rock stuff. Um, and I think then in turn, as our community grew, you know, when bands like the Constantines emerged, um, they blew people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's a trajectory there because yeah. Steve and Dallas and I were, I think we, in a weird way, and I don't know if Jim would agree, but I think we kind of like showed some of the indie rockers that like you could make something really loud yeah. and powerful and still have passion and not be lunk-headed about it. Mm-hmm. Like, we I think we had a bit of finesse. And the music we liked had a bit of finesse. Right. So I think we had... I, I It's immodest to say it, but I think we may have had a reciprocal relationship right. musically. Well, the title, the title, or at least the working title of this book, uh, it would be Who Needs What? So uh, partly, part of what I'm interested in across the board, and this is starting from, from Jim, uh, you know, from Jim being introduced to... Uh, uh, I, uh, Stephen Evans, friend of his, Stephen Evans, yeah. bringing in, uh, bringing in new music. So Jim would have been a fan of Howard Jones and of Queen, uh, and it takes someone to say, "Here, listen to this record." Right, and and it's this back and forth. It's this people, you know, needing things and giving things. Yeah, that that makes community and propels all of this. Yeah. So I'm sure there is something to to you saying that that what you were doing was as fundamental as what someone else was doing. Yeah. And when it's all going on in a community, it just becomes that community, right? It's not. Uh, yeah, like we just we were feeding off each other. Yeah. We all had kind of heroes, and we all had people we admired, and then we became our own kind of people we admired mm-hmm. just by being out there and doing stuff. And yeah, when I think about it and the evolution of where everyone ended up. That was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, we were all kind of building and building and building. Like, Jim's music got louder and louder and louder, yeah. too. And he parted, started playing with punk rock people yeah. like Evan Clark and, and whoever else. So it uh, something was going on between the Southern Ontario indie rock and punk scene where we realized we were not at cross purposes. We mm-hmm. were all kind of doing the same thing. I think it might be a good time, and I know we're having a nice chat, yes. to actually play a song representative of this time period. Let's do that. This is a. I asked Jim if we could play some songs, and he agreed. And he sent me something that appears. Oh, actually, he actually sent me notes, which I don't know if my. Hang on a second. Where's my phone? Uh, he sent me notes. Hang on. Sure. Oh my god! I was a little late for the show, walking up Gordon Hill, and uh, I feel badly. But 
He sent me some notes about this song, which I know from um, this release. He, sort of, he doesn't consider it a release, but he put out like 50 copies of a thing called Population Me. That's right. Uh, in, it's in the CFRU archi- uh, archives. Oh, is it here? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, he sent me um, this song. Do, 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 do. Uh, it's called Where Have All the Heroes mm. Gone? And uh, he says here, I, he recorded it at the Rock Sack in 1996. It's me using music from a drum instructional VHS tape <laughs> that I had, and the lyrics are from a pamphlet I got from a bank in downtown Guelph. I improvised the melody. The song eventually came out on two localish compilations in 2002 and 2003. Ten, the Ten compilation put out by 517, which that's a guy. 517 is a man? He's a man. Human-sized man? Uh... Yeah, and out of and an out of sound compilation that came out. So this is this is from 1996. So let's play this song by Jim, and uh, we'll take a little we'll take a little listen to what he was up to and how it maybe reflects our conversation. I know this song. Go well, on. I know it too, yeah. but maybe the people don't. Jim Guthrie, here we go. One, two, one, two, three, four. Where have all Seems to be on the ropes at the same time. Unsung heroes are everywhere. Maybe it's time to switch from public to private heroism. There you go, Jim Guthrie. Where have all the heroes gone? That's almost his first bank commercial, in some ways. <laughs> that's true. He did go on to do some. Uh, that's very clever. Yeah, yeah. It, it's true. He <laughs> claims that uh, he got the lyrics from a, a bank pamphlet. I I, fig- I thought it it came from some uh, like political uh, pamphlet. Well, uh, I mean, it, it, is our banks not political? 
not that I want to know about. Yeah, they trust me. Trust me, man. I did some reading. Maybe let's go into that. No, I don't want to talk about that right. necessarily. But yeah, there you go. That's an example of what Jim sounded like when I met him. Right. In 1996. Um, he sounded high. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I think he, uh, I th- well, never mind. Let's not talk about what, what kids did when they were kids. <laughs> high, high as in, as in, uh, as in voice-wise, his, his register? Or? No, no. I mean, right. like maybe he, 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 you know, his mind was altered. You got to get through the day somehow, though, right? Clearly. I mean, you can't just read bank pamphlets all day. They didn't day. have all the great TV back then that we have now. No, no, no. He, uh, no, Jim, uh, yeah, that's funny. It's, it was kind of the... They they were kind of um, I think that community was a bit like they were kind of freaks. Yeah, they were a little subversive. But you know what? It, in talking to um, uh, Steve's Steve's friend and Mandrill's uh, collaborator Steve McEwen, mm-hmm. who appears on some of the earlier tapes, yeah, um, made the point that so both him and Jim uh, came up uh, in school together and both had speech impediments, right. Um, and uh, Steve later on pointed out that as weird as we were, you know, that they were they were never bullies. Uh, oh, okay. that, they, that they were just that they were good to everybody. People liked them for the most part. I'm sure they got <clears throat> some grief for being weirdos. But uh, just in you talking about your coming to Guelph and your scene and your meeting Jim, um, if I would have to say that anything propels Jim's career and life is his willingness to to talk to people and, and meet people. Yeah, Jim um, and I can't get on the phone without talking for two hours. Yeah, um, and we always joke about it, but. Um, yeah, it's both of us obviously can go. Yeah. But it is a he I think has this generosity of um spirit that is notable. Like yeah. I, I don't think that it's any accident that the people who looked up to him uh were not they, everyone just gets kind of slightly touched by literally touched by him. He yeah. will touch you. <laughs> um no, but we we do like he he is really um welcoming and generous with his time. People have advice for him. And again, it's not necessarily like, how do I move these waveforms? It's yeah. like life advice. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a thoughtful guy. And I think anyone who hears his music and, and listens to what he's talking about knows that. All right. Um, and that, that certainly resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is so nice, especially at that age, you know? And uh, Jim's a little bit older than you as well. <clears throat> Jim's Isn't older he? than me. Yeah. And like, yeah, like when I met Jim and Tim Kingsbury briefly... Um, I only met I only met Jim or Tim rather a handful of times. Um, they in particular, they were nice. Yeah, like they had a warmth to them. Yeah. they were like, "Hey, how's it going?" Like they were just like clearly had like kind of a moral center. As much as they were like trying to unsettle people mm-hmm. and had wicked sarcastic senses of humor in some ways, they were just they were nice. Yeah, and I think that's part of what resonated. Like you know. You're wary when you come into town, and it's so weird when the first thing you, the, your first interaction with someone is them on stage, right? Because they're, you know, when you're on stage as a performer, you're automatically in a weird, vulnerable slash self defensive, mm-hmm. po- you know, pose. But yeah, when I started talking to those guys, that, you know, that struck me uh, that they were just super nice yeah. and easy to talk to, and, and you know, not all of the people were. Oh, of course not. You Some can't, of them, all of them can't be. Well, you know, it was still they were pretty cool. You know, in retrospect, <clears throat> they were like they were cool people. Yeah, they were cool. Like we were, I wasn't part of it, but they were kind of like I don't want to name names, but they were just like people we kind of looked up to, sure. and they seemed like they were doing cool stuff. Yeah. So it was it was an impressionable age. 
Um, so one of those cool things, and uh, and I, you know I'm I'm talking to lots of people, not as many people as I should. Every time I talk to one person, uh, they recommend ten other people that I right. should talk to. So uh, this book is just going to be probably a failure of of information. <laughs> and, uh, it sounds good um, already. Uh, uh, so one of one of these things that happened was was uh, was the was the three gut records the old uh, the old three gut records that came out of Guelph. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now three gut, as I understand it, um, and again, I, it's hard getting any specific information because everyone I see, you know, their eyes roll a little bit back in their heads, and they're they're imagining. I assume calendar pages are, are slapping back uh-huh. onto the calendar. Uh-huh. There's a lot of fog. I don't know if that has to do with the drugs that that you were talking about before. I've but, been straight edge my whole life. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, hopefully, I don't know where you're going with this, but uh, I, I hope it goes <clears throat> in a great direction because I know stuff. Well, it's it's going into uh, <laughs> it's going into how exactly three got. Uh, began as I understand it, Jim Guthrie um, was uh, on welfare. Uh, was uh, his his signature dish at the time was toast mm-hmm. covered in curry paste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it, for some reason, this guy, uh, you know, struggling, decided that he would put out a, a, a CD, a compact disc compilation with new music uh, of his uh, previous previous tapes. So, yeah. when the CD was put together, uh, it was put together under Three Gut. But three gut, as I understand it, at that point was just a, a logo, um, was just uh, something that you'd call, you know. That's probably accurate. Um, I would. I always think like it's true. Zero zero one mm-hmm. TGR was a uh, thousand songs, I believe. Yep. But to me, the label felt real when Reg right. got into his red minivan. Who had a name? I can't remember the name. We drove the hell out of that thing. He loaned us that van. We went to New York with it um, at least once. Um, But he had the wherewithal to quickly put out his own CD and tour. And, you know, Reg, I think, I think even, like, it's so ridiculous. Like, Gentleman Reg now and his Lightfires persona as Mm -hmm. well, like, is so extroverted. Right. uh, And so quick and smart on stage. But my goodness, like seeing him with his long hair and right. his painfully shy banter singing these really lovely, distinct pop songs. The fact that he was the guy who was like, I'm I'm going on the road. He right. toured across Canada. He toured as much as he could. He toured his ass off. That was really inspiring, I think, to everyone. Was this TGR003? Yeah, it must touring? have been. I don't know what... Hypothetical was, Girl? Was, 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 Roy, was Royal... Theoretical. Royal, theoretical oh, Girl. Oh, yeah. Theoretical. Uh, was Royal, Royal City, City was, was number two? two? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I think... <clears throat> okay. So, yeah. So Reg, to me, was huge mm-hmm. at that time. Royal City featured Aaron Riches, uh, and then he got uh, members of the Jim Guthrie Quintet. Mm-hmm. In fact, he, it was the Jim Guthrie yeah. Quintet, including... Uh, and then also Leslie Feist, for a brief period, was in the band as well. And Aaron also had it had that same spirit that I'm talking about and referring right. to with Reg. He had the spirit of uh, travel, transcending the town, yeah. going, getting yeah. on a Greyhound and touring. At the time, Aaron had a kind of a embarrassingly um, overt American troubadour thing happening. Yeah. Um, but he also had these other... He had the sensibility... Uh, he was evolving. Like, yeah. he kind of... You know, Aaron, it's funny, this thing just came up, this um, Fugazi has this live series. That's right. And Aaron, when he was 13, put on Fugazi's, like, third Canadian show at The Loft 
in Guelph. The loft is right across from Macondo Books. I don't even know if it, you can go in there anymore. Uh, I believe the, is, I thought it closed when they redid <clears throat> City Hall. Yeah, like I, don't, it's I, don't, been I don't. Torn to the ground. Is it totally gone? I I think so, but I could be wrong. Okay. Anyway, so you have these people who had a sense of the world and a desire to make a difference, mm-hmm. like make put themselves out into the world. And I think people like Jim had a modesty. Yeah. Like he was happy making these tapes, and if he got a little attention in Toronto, it was cool. But it wasn't something mm-hmm. that drove him. But then, yeah, the combination of Reg have, and Reg not only doing it, but having a van <laughs> and Aaron um, pushing the Jim Guthrie band in yeah. a way, that started something. That right. was the groundswell of, of, of movement beyond the city. And that's literally, when I say movement, Aaron moved to Toronto. Yeah. Um, slowly but surely, the rest of the members of Royal City, <clears throat> Jim, Simon, I think Nathan lived in Toronto. Yeah. They all just moved to Toronto. And they made, you know, the move after, I think they were also following in the footsteps of, I can't forget King Cobb Steely. Well, that's, um, mm-hmm. Nine St. Patrick was King Cobb Steely's that's right. house, right? The house. Yeah. Man, we're giving every address in the world that, <laughs> but yeah. Well, these are all on the backs of albums though. Yeah, sure, sure. There's, uh, yeah, King Cobb Steely were part of that whole thing too. In fact, in some ways they, they, they might've been, weirdly, King Cobb Steely and their success and their attempts to connect with an audience outside of this city and this region was a sure, but absolutely an inspiration mm-hmm. to Lisa Moran, right. Tyler Clark Burke, the people that ended up spearheading Three Gut, right. shepherding these musicians into like, hey, just go, yeah, um, just go on the road, see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, I still, <clears throat> I wonder, you know, I don't know how my brain works. I don't know how anyone's brain works. I wonder if I will ever forget the first time I went on tour with Royal City. Well, so they sent they sent Royal City on the road and you were sent along to look after them. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, I believe there was some resistance to this. Aaron and Jim like characters. Right. They like kind of like quirky people that – and they have a – Aaron in particular has an affinity for and – a, and a soft spot for people that rub people the wrong way. <laughs> okay. And at the time, I think uh, that could be true of me. Sure. I kind of just did my thing. Um, I was, a, I don't know. I don't even, I can't be objective about that, but I feel like that was true of me. Right. I was you very, seem to be describing a, a, a house cat at this point. Yeah, I was very outspoken right. and I licked myself a lot. Yeah. Um, no, I was pretty outspoken and I made jokes and didn't take, they were all kind of in their own way. They took themselves very seriously <laughs> and I kind of would undercut that and I don't know. But yeah, somehow Jim and Aaron both really wanted me to come. Um, so, and then Leslie kind of quit the band right. a few weeks. There was like questions of how we are going to fit everyone in the van. Well, the Royal City Band, uh, were, was, they, they played with Leslie Feist for a while, right? They were the backup band for a few, um, um Monarch c- shows maybe? That could possibly be. I don't recall that. I know a bunch of them are in the the video that came out for yeah. It's Cool to Love Your Family. Directed by Nick Crane. I yeah, think, here yeah. in Guelph. Um, that's all true. I don't know that I can't recall if Royal City backed her up. I know that probably it yeah. probably makes sense, but I mean, Leslie joined <laughs> Royal City, and uh, she and she and Nathan Lord went on a tour across Canada, and then we we started to get these. And I didn't know Nathan very well at that point. I met him a couple times. He, we started getting these dispatches from him that he may not do the Royal City tour. Right. Uh, he was broke. This tour with Leslie was killing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, Nathan is a one of my dearest friends, but also uh, 
somewhat emotionally short-sighted or something like he's like grumpy he gets grumpy in the moment and i don't think he has a long view of where he just like sometimes he'll make a decision and then i'll I'll just be like nathan like just think about think a couple steps ahead um i don't know i think that face tattoo looks pretty good on (laughs) um i love nathan to death i just am saying like i i in retrospect i see this as an early indication he was like i'm not coming Mm -hmm. i can't afford it and then I, I played drums, so there was this kind of feeling like, oh, oh maybe Vish will come if Nathan can't come. Um, maybe he'll fill in here and there or something. Um, but he ended up, you know, coming to his senses, mm-hmm. and we went on this trip. And uh, now, were you on the tour um, that uh, where the instruments were held up at the border? Was that your tour? Uh, there, uh, but, but, uh, we did a weird. You know, this was two thousand. Mm-hmm. October of 2000, so before 9-11. Um, we did a thing where, like, the instruments and the people, we all were in different cars. We right. didn't go over together. Okay. And um, we just had instruments. I don't remember. Maybe. I don't okay. know. I know. I think the first show is in, like, Syracuse or something. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Or maybe the first show is in Brooklyn. I can't remember. Anyway, we, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I don't right. know. I know we ended up being, <laughs> we ended up fine. Yeah. But we there was some deception to get across. Yeah. Well, the the old the, the trick is to say that you're recording there, right? Have someone yeah. vouch for. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I don't even know if we did that. Um, I don't think we did that at that time. Right. I don't think we had to necessarily. Because I, I mean, how do you say we're gone for three weeks? I yeah. guess you could be recording for three weeks, but I don't remember us establishing a contact. All I know is that Lisa and Tyler, I think, and mostly probably Lisa, engineered this tour. Right. It was three weeks, like every night, yeah. in like all across the eastern United States. Like we went everywhere, pretty much. And uh, as I say, I still have like a visceral sense memory of certain things. Right. Well, so I I, sp- I spoke to Aaron on the phone over there in Spain a mm-hmm. while ago. Do you want to give uh, Do you want to give people his home address? Uh, he, didn't, he, he didn't. You don't have it at the ready. No. Okay. I, I right. believe it's a, a, a convent, though. Is that correct? I I, I don't want to speculate. All right. Uh, some floating castle, I believe, somewhere in uh-huh. Spain. You just um, no uh, sense of decorum. And so or I don't know if you if you know. I well, you know Aaron, of course. And yeah, and, I just corresponded uh, with Aaron this week. Right. Um, he was also very tired. The time difference, and his his <laughs> uh, his kids had been a little ill. The whole family, maybe. Yeah. So uh, Aaron was happy to happy to talk, but maybe not in the the the, the greatest space for memory. Mm. The so what he he kept underlining in talking about Royal City is. Um, is is that it was it was just a band of friends or a band of not brothers necessarily but they became brothers uh yeah um he would say that that regardless of how the shows went or who they were playing with um it was constantly remarkable uh with this band uh that they were real friends and this may mm-hmm. be something that is is uh is rare in bands i don't know i've never been in a real band before or toured before but I assume that there's acrimony at a certain point, especially when a band uh, turns more into a business than a, than a creative friendship. The cliche that people always use is chemistry. Right. Um, but it's true. Yeah. Um, it's true. You, you play together. Um, I think there's a reason why, like, Led Zeppelin <laughs> yeah. or the Jesus Lizard, like, together were unstoppable. But when they kind of splintered off, it might be a perception thing. Hmm. Like it might be a 
uh, like a branding thing where you're right. like, no, I just like the thing, and like everything else is like an offshoot, and mm-hmm. it's not as. I don't think it's an accident that the things after those things, uh, or before those things, whatever, aren't right. quite as good. When you have three or four people or five people, whatever, when you have a group of people that gel together and play well together, it's uh, it's unmatchable. Mm-hmm. And so Royal City had that. Yeah. Um. You know, I they when Nathan left, Nathan Laura ended up. I alluded earlier to decisions he makes that right. I think he either regrets or, again, doesn't take the long view. And he, he and I don't know if this counts as one. He, I hope he's not listening. Um, I don't if, think anybody's listening. Nathan, if you're listening, give us a call. <laughs> give us a call. We'll put you on the line. Um, he left the band for uh, a new opportunity at West, and they brought in a new drummer. Lonnie? Lonnie James. Yeah. Fantastic guy. But the band changed. Right. Um, and around that time, the band slowed down. Well, this is something that's interesting to me. Um, uh, so, you know, Jim has been making music for about 20 years mm-hmm. now, more than over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and it's, I think, amazing that Jim is still making music. I mean, he would be making music anyway, I imagine, even if he was, you know, still scrubbing the toilets and wimpies, he would probably still be sort of going home and... And picking up something. That's the idea that I get. But there is... Well, that's easier. I mean, he's 40. That's right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I think you try to do that. We, He's got himself in a situation right now where he can do whatever he wants. Right. Um, um, I only I only bring that up to describe a uh, something that's interesting to me is still, you know, 10 years... I feel like I should switch. This chair is so creaky. Oh, that's fine. No, go ahead. Keep, you uh, so as, as a guy who just turned 30 or about to turn 31... Uh, and has made has tried to make art or being artistic or creative in some way. <laughs> Whoa! I think that's why that chair was removed. Is it broken? It looked like you almost tipped over. Yeah, that was weird. It's um, less squeaky though. Yeah, it's totally going to tip. My goodness, this place is falling apart. Go ahead. Uh, it's it's so you describing coming to Guelph and and being in this community, meeting these people, and doing these things uh, is all well and good when you are twenty years old. Yeah. But at a certain point. You have to turn in. You have to turn the thing that you do with your friends. If you want to keep doing it, you have to turn it into a certain kind of business. There needs to be another another sense or another another drive or another reality that alters what you do. Jim is amazingly successful in in that he's been able to um, sort of make new groups of friends, maybe and and who also have business. But the feeling that I get from Royal City, and maybe this describes what happened with Three Gut Records as well, was that these were things built on. Uh, on friendships uh, and and a certain degree of creativity or a reliance on creativity, uh, and when these things um, get old enough where they now need to have a, a money source or they need to start you know turning a profit, uh, I feel like that 's when these uh, these exploits kind of fizzle out a little bit that would make sense, except that the band had their greatest success and then stopped right. They were signed to a, a Rough Trade Records, yes, um, in the in the UK, and were touring Europe, and uh, opportunities uh, were coming t- their way. Right. Um, personally, I think that if you look at Aaron Rich's trajectory, because what had happened was just Aaron, like you say, didn't think he had a future in that. Right. And was had starting a family and wanted to settle down, mm-hmm. and that life is not. It, you can't do both things. Right. Certainly, you know, it's hard enough to work a nine-to-five job and come home and 
be with your family uh, and and feel like you're making keeping up with not only contributing but make, mm-hmm. keeping up with life. Um, so the idea of being away for leaving your family behind for three or four weeks um, to make a relatively meager, tough living right. is unappealing. However, I think when I think of Aaron, that's something he would do mm-hmm. as soon as. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Things started happening. He thought he would... It's weird. It's it, yeah. to me for. I don't have this outlook anymore, but I do have this. I have this memory of kind of being like, "Well, Guelph, like that's what people in Guelph do." Yeah. As soon as something's going well, they kind of kibosh it or self sabotage or whatever. Well, I and I think I think that's what I was driving at is that there is you have your reasons for doing something, and there they yeah. are for reasons of friendship or creativity. But there is a there is I think business or a career is kind of a, a drop of ink in that glass of milk for a lot of people. Um, yeah, but it, just, uh, it doesn't become fun, or you're doing things for <laughs> for different reasons when they become careers as opposed to pastimes. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I mean, the label got yeah, three got evolved, and we haven't even got to um, one of the key moments in the label actually, which is like after Royal City and and Reg and Jim, um, the label decided to start branching out to people that were kind of peripheral to the community, um, to the community of people that ran the Mm -hmm. thing. So, and then it became too much for everyone, I think. They just didn't want to do it anymore, or it ran its course, or whatever. I mean, who's to say why? They ran out of cardboard to make albums with, I think. It's hard to know why, um, you know, Merge Records is 25 years old this week, but or this year, rather, but... um, um, but three got didn't keep going or mm-hmm. whatever. Like I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you have to talk to those people. But my sense on the outside was that, you know, life happened. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that one of the key moments of, because we talked about how Aaron and Reg seem to be pushing people like Jim in, just propelling them. Yeah. And inspiring them to go out in the road and do stuff. And then, I mean, having said what I said earlier, my memory might be foggy, but Jim did tour his little butt off. Eventually. With Royal City or? Or on, on his, his own, own yeah. too. Yeah. Like yeah. he just eventually just like that life became appealing to him. Yeah. But I do, and I think it was spurred on by people like Reg and Aaron. Yeah. But I think when the Constantines came around, it was a big deal. Yeah. That that was the the first unique, like I think in a way... 
the Reg Royal City Gym thing, there was a lineage there. Yeah. Um, musically and uh, and just in terms of the players, the personnel, like everyone kind of shared duties and things yeah. like that. It looked, it, I think it looked maybe more official than it was because they were coming out it, with wrapped CDs, but 3Gut at that point seemed essentially like Sonic Bunny that was putting out Jim's early tapes. Right. It was something It was something you did with your friends. Well, it may be for whatever, at that time you got to remember like legitimacy in terms of a logo on the back of your yeah. label was... was uh, Iffy at best. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone was starting a label at that yeah. point uh, because they felt like they could. Um, but when the cons came aboard, it did change things. Like peop- more people noticed the label yeah. because it was a, it was a more, you know, in its own way, it was a challenging sound, but it had a more, it had more populism to it. Yeah. Um, and it was more energy. Like you could just, you know, I think if you go to see Royal City, it might take you three or four songs to be like, holy, yeah. holy cow. You know, but at the time when the con started playing, um, it was immediate. Yeah. Like something just, there was a power and a charisma at that time. I should say that, you know, because of my history with Dallas and Steve, like I actually didn't see some of the early con shows. Right. Um, we kind of had a falling out. Um, but I distinctly remember driving to New York with a whole bunch of people from Royal City and was playing a show at, um, they were doing a thing for Spin and they were playing at Brownies with Crooked Fingers, which is Eric mm. Bachman of Archers of Loaf. And, uh, oh, shoot, an offshoot of Mercury Rev, whose name I can't remember right now. And that was a weird trip. I met, I got to go to Letterman. <laughs> like on the day, I just yeah. like, everyone in New York was like, you're not going to Letterman on a day's notice. But I put myself on a reserves list and while the Spin thing was finishing up, mm. I went and watched a, a taping of Letterman. Which was, was it as cold in there as they say it is? I was wearing, at the time, I used to sport these uh, overalls. I worked for a car rental company. Okay. And I just always wore these overalls. Probably also in a nod to Steve Albini, uh, who I, <laughs> every time I would see Shellac, he was wearing these uh, overalls. Uh, but I had to wear these overalls right. for my job. And then I just, I got lazy and would just wear them around. So my, I think I was pretty bundled up. Yeah. Uh, I was f- pretty warm. But... Uh, it was cool being at the Letterman studio. Everything, every time I went out with Aaron mm-hmm. or Jim, but particularly Aaron, something crazy magical would happen. Right. Like every time, like just something weird. I met Janine Graffalo at the Brownie show and like she couldn't get into the show and I had to go tell her, I'm sorry, I can't, we can't let you into huh. the show. I wasn't doing the door. I just was sure, like. Sure, yeah. Someone's like, got to break it. Well, Janine. I saw her and she was trying to get in. I'm like, uh, hang on, Janine. I'll go see if I can get you yeah. in. And, and they were like. No, we can't. Sorry. Jens Lechman has a similar song about Kristen Dunst, I think. Yes. Or Kristen. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of a funny, funny time. But I remember driving to New York and these guys hearing the Constantine's album on a CDR for the first time Hmm. and being really blown away. Right. And it changed lots of stuff. And I I don't know if this is the right segue, but I, I know that it changed Jim and I want to play a song by Jim, by the Constantine's that Jim did a version of. On, this was released on the, uh, I couldn't tell you the year, but I believe it was released on the Believer Magazine's music Yeah, I have, issue. I have a little thing, uh, notes from Jim about it, and I don't mind sharing them with you, Andrew, and the people listening. The second tune, this this song, it's it's, uh, it's the Constantine song, Nighttime, Anytime, It's All Right. This came out as a part of the June 2005 Believer Magazine comp. Owen Pallet is playing the violin on this track. I made up some lyrics in the middle bit. 
The CD also featured the Decemberist, Spoon, Constantine's, The Shins, Mount Erie, and many others. I believe it was a covers thing, and the cons did yeah. an elevator to hell song? Uh, Why I Hate the Summer of something? Yeah, 93. Yeah. yeah. So this is, the co- this is Jim, just to bridge the gap. That's good. Are you okay if we take a break and Absolutely, play a song? Yeah. I just want to play people some music because we are talking a lot. Yeah, it's good. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Are you learning stuff for your book? I am. We're we're getting we're getting some good stuff okay. here. Here we go. Here's uh here's Jim doing a con song. Let's see what it sounds like.
something else just started playing all of a sudden. Technical issues. No, I, that was me. Let's oh, blame sorry. that one on me. Sorry. I don't know why that even happened. That's my, uh, my ringtone. Sorry about that. That's okay. Jim Guthrie there with Nighttime, Anytime, It's All Right. That is from the Constantine's album uh, Shine a Light, which came out in the year 2003. The Constantines are going to be playing some shows this year. The year is now 2014. And they're also reissuing that album, Shine a Light, with some bonus stuff. It's going to come out on a vinyl and stuff on Sub Pop. And we're very excited. So far, they're playing Field Trip uh, June 7th or 8th. We're not sure which one. And hopefully, they'll be playing some other shows um, around that time as well. Hopefully, one in Guelph. We never know. Yeah, I, we'll I hope. See. We'll see. The schedules are... Uh, maybe somewhere on Ontario Street. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Or Huron Street. Where or they Huron used to Street. Play. That's right. Yeah, so the cons. And Jim. Jim likes the cons. Now, when I heard... Uh, when I got my... Uh, I think I was subscribing to The Believer at the time. Mm-hmm. I was a young enough man who believed in the world, and The Believer was seemed like a good, a good thing for me. Uh, I was shocked and impressed to see... Uh, Constantine's Jim Guthrie included on this uh, on this collaboration, and I think I knew the, I knew the Constantines were were well known and well loved, but I think I it was uh, exciting for me to see Jim Guthrie on there, mm. thinking that there was all you know all of these uh, these hipsters like myself in all of these little uh, armpits of of North America and maybe abroad uh, would all of a sudden be be hearing Jim Guthrie and. Uh, um, one thing that, that, that I read all the time, and I don't know if it's just lazy journalism or what it is, uh, but I, th- I think it's mostly that Jim has been around long enough uh, that, it's, that it's very easy to say and just good to read that, that Jim Guthrie is an influential Canadian musician. But I've talked to some people, and I, I mean, for me, Jim Guthrie is one of the, the, you know, the biggest people in my life. Like I saw Jim Guthrie in 1999. Um, on the the thousand songs release uh, in the Albion. Uh, now I was uh, what sixteen or seventeen or something like that. Didn't like going to shows. I didn't like having to sit on the ground. I was kind of a chubby kid, and my bum kind of stuck out. Uh, so it was a big deal. Wouldn't for me that to help go... you with sitting on the ground if you had a chubby bum? Well, no, uh, you know I didn't know how to dress, so I, I would have my bum would would stick out. Oh, like you your know? bare bum? Yeah, my bare bum, uh, a crack. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. So that, but that was a life-changing experience for me. I had with one group of friends, like old group of friends, I had seen uh, the first American Pie uh, matinee that day, and then with a new group of friends that I was making, uh, saw went to a bar, which was a big deal for me. Yeah, uh, and and saw this. Like I was already getting into Ween, and I was you know getting into They Might Be Giants at that point. So Jim Guthrie wasn't uh, you know completely out of left field, but it was a, a huge a huge deal for me, and in, in, in some ways changed the trajectory of my life. So I, I know that Jim Guthrie is important. But when I read that, that Jim Guthrie is um, an, you know, an influential musician in Canadian music, um, I can't seem to get anybody to tell me why. Well, I mean, influence as a musician uh, doesn't necessarily mean a sound you've conjured or a technique you've honed. Uh, it can be kind of part and parcel with the story mm-hmm. behind the artist, the artistic trajectory. Right. Um, now, Jim is a rare example where I think his music is is strong and invent- inventive and innovative, yeah. and um, I don't hear too many people like when you. I think what you're getting at potentially is that when you hear influential, you assume that a lot of other people have come around to kind of knock it right. off, yeah, and uh, or rip it off if knock it off was confusing. But I think <laughs> that Jim's music is complex. 
And I don't think it's easy to rip off. I mean, you can hear little shades of it here and there. Mm -hmm. The the new Bri Webb record to me has Hmm. elements of Jim when people hear it next, uh, when it comes out in May. Um, I hear a bit of Jim in there more than I have in his past work. I think, um, I think it is really about him and um, the place he holds as someone who, you know, we were talking about the early days of Three Gut. And when Jim moved to Toronto, something was going on in Toronto. Yeah. And this included uh, labels like Paper Bag. This included labels like Arts and Crafts, who were just starting, mm-hmm. and Three Gut. And, and in a sense, and, and not to exclude Blocks Recording Club or whoever was sort of building stuff around that time, there was something really integral and important about what those people were doing. Yeah. And they arguably brought Toronto into where we are now. Mm-hmm. There's something about that period and that group of people that have had a lasting influence. So when people say Jim is influential, I think they're also recognizing his place in that. Right. I hesitate to call him a pioneer, although he does get around by horse and carriage. <laughs> he is a little bit of a pioneer. And that the, way. the racist comments that come out of that guy's uh, mouth, too. I, I mean, he, you know, he doesn't know. It's hard being a pioneer. That's true. I think uh, you've got to be mad at someone. That's, yeah, that's Not right. just, the, I mean, you can only be as mad at the elements. To see him glare at an Irishman is just... It's something. Jeez, yeah. I think Daggers. that. I think that's kind of what, this is not to shortchange any of his recorded work, but I, I think Jim's music is, is deceptively hard, like complex to, hmm. to play. Right. Um, you know, he doesn't do things that conventionally. And I think, so when, and I do, like you hear it in the people who really love him. Yeah. You do hear his influence come through sometimes, yeah. like his musical influence. Yeah. But I do think it's like, as I say, it's Jim's a cute little package. And like when, when you hear about his influence, it's it's everything he's done. Right. Um, do you... I'm just trying to think of a, of, of a place where you see that influence in action. Well, I think, uh, every, as I say, I think it's, you know, I would recommend... Have you read Stuart Berman's This Book is Broken? No, I have not. Okay, so this is a book ostensibly about broken social scene and that arts and crafts scene, but it's really, that's kind of a ruse. Hmm. What it's really documenting is this period in Toronto. Yeah. Because that's where all of that comes from. So even if you hate broken social scene, but you care about Jim, you'll want to read that book. If you care about Three Gut, you'll want to read that book Hmm. because it's the closest thing we have to a real chronicle of what was going on. And, you know, I'm not suggesting this was some heroic feat. It's people making art. Yeah. I think is. I mean, for me, that's heroic. But people would say you're being ridiculous. Like, it's not a, it's a material, it's a struggle of material conditions as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's important. Well, I was I was talking to uh, one of the people that I've talked to so far is Michael Barclay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so uh, Michael was certainly involved with, with Black Cabbage in in the Canadian music of the of the the nineties or the in the, you know early nineties into the late nineties, yeah. And Michael described a uh, a sort of failure of the the industry at the time, where where for some reason people weren't coming out to shows the same way they were before. Yeah, um, basically, there wasn't su- label support. Mm-hmm. Um, even just you know described at the Albion that there would be at one point uh, you know a band playing every single night you know, in the, in the mid nineties. It's true. I mean, you, you talk to people of that vintage or whatever, and they'll still be like, Hey, is the Albion still doing mm-hmm. shows? I'm like, no, I'm not forever. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. I think, I mean, I've, uh, at some point the kind of, <laughs> when Kurt Cobain died. Yes. My uh, birthday actually, or they found him on my birthday. Good for you. April 8th. Yeah. When Kurt Cobain died, 
it kind of signaled the real end to the in like hmm I don't know how to put this. I noticed a stark difference. Like basically, from for about four years, while mainstream culture was co-opting and commodifying underground culture, it was an interesting time. There's yeah. lots of interesting work being done, and a lot of stuff that would not normally be embraced was being embraced. I think partially by bars and people who stood to make who wanted to make money right. off of yeah. it, um, because they thought, oh, if this Nirvana thing took off, who knows what's next. Who knows what's going to catch on? Who yeah. knows, like, if I book Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet every night at the Albion, maybe that's a band that'll take off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think yeah. it was just like this, to be completely cynical about it, I think people were like, I'm going to take a chance because I don't know what's going to break and right. I don't know what could make me money. Yeah. And then when Kurt died, it got depressing. It was obviously a, a tragedy. Mm. And I think because he signaled that shift, he also signaled a kind of like, you know what? This is too heavy. Yeah. This underground culture thing, it's becoming too real. Yeah. And slowly, around 95, 96, 97, those rock clubs became dance clubs. Huh. They became a place of disco and joy. <laughs> the same, it's, it, to me, it's cyclical. It, to me, like, punk happened and disco were kind of happening at the yeah. same time. Eventually, punk seemed too dark. Disco ended up being very dark. But as soon as there's darkness and death involved with something, I think people kind of Gradually move on. The bars. When the air gets dank with death and loathing, right? Yes. You. What is that again? That is something. That's Royal City. That is Royal City. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I totally blanked on that. I never paid attention to their songs. (laughs) I was too busy selling their (laughs) T-shirts. Dank is the air of death and loathing. That's right. There's something on the floor. There's something on the floor. So I think that. uh, So there was a dark period for live music, Mm -hmm. and that what what uh, Barkley is talking about is that. Yeah. Um, and then gradually the sun came up again uh, because of, as I say, the hard work of bands uh, in the late 90s and into the 2000s right. where they started just making a slightly more accessible, empowering, accessible but empowering version of rock and pop and underground music. Yeah. That has carried over into now. Like that bubble hasn't burst mm-hmm. somehow. You know, people said... I mean, the Arcade Fire is the biggest band in the world. And is that true by now? That they're yeah, the, okay. they're the biggest band in the yeah. world. I don't think there's a bigger band in the world, right? For better or for worse. I mean, I, would, I no, I think that's a fair assessment. They are the biggest band in the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't think as much as I don't know what they need. Like it's there's incredulity about it because they're a little indie rock band. Yeah, but they've won the biggest Grammys. Mm-hmm. They sell out Madison Square Garden multiple nights in a row. Um, maybe they're the biggest band in North America. These are all North American accolades and, and uh, achievements, but I know that's not true. We are the first world, though. I, I'm, I'm just saying they're the biggest band in the world. Yeah. And I think the fact that they're still the biggest band in the world 10 years, 11 years since they put out a record mm-hmm. is is telling about a shift yeah. in sort of the mentality about how viable is this music that people like Jim make. Right. It's no accident that when the Arcade when Arcade Fire play Toronto, they shout out hidden cameras and Constantines, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they I saw co- I saw those videos. Yeah, they covered songs by these people from that era. So yeah. again, when I talk about this book is broken, when I talk about Toronto about ten, eleven, twelve years ago, it's a hugely important period. Yeah, and that's what Jim is a part of. And I forget what your question was now, but I feel like that's important to recognize that. Well, we, yeah, that's what I was I was asking about. Oh, you were asking about that time period. Uh, yeah, and that time period. Well, yeah, it died. It, I think honestly, I honestly <laughs> think when Kurt died it was made music depressing mm-hmm. it made the idea of a live rock band 
completely depressing. Right. As it should have. It was a depressing time. Yeah. I didn't. I got really sad about it a year afterwards. <coughs> That's uh, fine. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know what that means, but. Well, I heard because on my birthday, I. I uh, a How old of were mine, you when Kurt died? Uh, I would have been 10. Yeah. So that yeah, doesn't matter. 11, to you. maybe. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily matter to you. Um, yeah. But I, I, again, a year a year afterwards, I was really shooken up. I had my Kurt Cobain memorial mm-hmm. t shirt, you know, posing with my grandma in the backyard. Yeah. But I don't. Selling. I think that that was, as I say, I think that also kicks. That. that situation was so empowering mm-hmm. um when you talk about people who are influential like that whole explosion as much as we can be critical of how it happened and a lot of people who were making just great livings as underground artists in the 80s mm-hmm. um some of them jumped at the chance to be commodified in the 90s and that's you know you can have your opinion about that but i think other artists younger artists like jim yeah saw that explosion as an opportunity to play like right. to be like oh i can do that too right. and that's when you got more home recording and stuff going on yeah so i think it was actually pretty empowering stuff now uh, one thing that i that i get from people constantly when i you know when i talk to the fans when i talk to the kids about jim which i try and do uh is um there seems to be and and i don't disagree with this because i i've got i've talked to jim a few times i would never say that i know the guy but I, I'm starting to get a sense of the, the man or the person that he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that is often often uh, said about his music is that uh, people feel like it's people feel like it's honest, or they feel like it's some uh, some true version of who the person creating it is. And of course, honesty is a, a really important to people now. They like mm-hmm. the idea of something uh, authentic. Um, knowing Jim, would you say that that's a, knowing Jim as a man, as a friend? Would you say that that's that that's true, that that uh, there is something about what Jim puts of himself in his music? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked earlier about kind of the positive, warm feelings that people who have met him mm-hmm. kind of pick up on. And uh, there's similar feelings and senses. There's a similar sense of that in his work. Right. I think the closest that people came, the closest thing there's ever been to a Jim Guthrie backlash was when he began writing commercial jingles. Right. Uh, and, and when he... This is the the level of the extent to how talented this guy is. He gets into this field. He starts scoring some films and, and doing some mm-hmm. stuff. And he starts to be approached about this prospect of doing commercial jingles. And one of his first ones is massive. Yeah. It changes the industry. He does the hands in my pocket jingle for Capital One. Yeah. And it becomes uh, it's such a thing that he, Jim Guthrie becomes like a verb. Like Jim Guthrie it. Other yeah. people are saying yeah. to, like, jingle writers, can you yeah. make this more Jim Guthrie? That's weird. Um, but that's the first time, like, the honesty that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that that um, that integrity was ever questioned. Right. I know Jim. Mm-hmm. I've traveled with Jim. I would describe Jim as an apolitical person. Yeah. Um, on, on many levels. I think he has his belief system, but he's not above eating a Big Mac. Yeah. Whereas I found that abhorrent. <laughs> like, I was just like, no, I'm going to walk yeah. 20. I make my life harder. Yeah. Um, but he's like, no, nah, I'm just going to whatever. I, the running joke on the Royal City Tour was that he would have to have a Whopper or something like, <laughs> wherever we went. Um, you know. And, and he's worked at McDonald's. He knows He knows how that stuff works. Right? I worked like at McDonald's too. Yeah. I got fired from McDonald's when I was a kid. Yeah. Because they said I didn't care enough about the food. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> I did not care that much about the food. Um 
So the honesty that you're talking about, I mean, I think as I alluded to earlier and as other people have probably told you, like Jim's really easy to talk to. Yeah. And I think it's because he's really thoughtful. Yeah. So as much as he's he's very honest, I think he's also got a nice perspective on right. the world. So I think that combination coming through in his work and coming through as people who know him, like mm-hmm. that's what why we like him yeah. and that's why we want to believe in his work. And um and that's that's a, there's a little magical aspect right. to him that. Way. But that honesty as well is is what the the ad world loved about it. Uh they they I think they loved kind of the 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 broken sound of uh of the music. Uh I uh, the I talked to Ted who Ted Rosnick who's I, I'm going to forget the name of the the company though, but who oh, like an ad agency? Yeah, who employed mm-hmm. Jim. Uh, and um, told me the story of, of Jim doing his demo, the Hands in My Pocket demo, and it's like, okay, great, we want this. Um, and so on the day that, that Jim came in to, uh, to record <coughs> the song, he, it was just Jim who showed up. And the, uh, the, the company who was there were just, they were scared. They were scared. Oh, they were expecting, they were like scared. A, big, yeah, they expecting wanted, a band? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so I think when, when people, uh, they heard that, that sort of the, the individualness of the sound, which is what I would, you know, I would associate with with honesty or closeness to the person, like an know? idiosyncratic sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's that it's just Jim, Jim who is who is self taught. Jim who likes the process of making music, finding out about what sounds good. Yeah, uh, is not afraid of melody. Uh, is very interested in melody and hooks. I mean, even listening to you know a tape that Jim made in 1994, you can hear that 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 ear for. For earworms, there's catchy stuff on that. No, Jim's completely a pop songwriter. Yeah. As much as we've been talking about, he was totally into. Um, it's the same way like a Velvet Underground song is ridiculously yeah. catchy. Like it shouldn't be. It sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't sound right. Yeah, but it sounds amazing. Yeah, and it touches you. And that's what Jim's stuff, particularly his early to mid stuff. I think he's as he's gone on. Um, you know, it's become a bit more refined or mature. Like, I hate using words like that because it's <laughs> stupid, but I think it, it has become cleaner. Yeah. At the very least, I think it's safe to say it's become cleaner, and that's just a part of any creative trajectory. You get better at stuff. Right. So while you initially might aspire to make a record like Jim's Last One Takes Time when you're 20, you are hopefully self-aware enough to know that that's not totally within your grasp, so you mm-hmm. do the thing that appeals to you in that moment. Yeah. That's what he does. And that's what he always does. I think his sound, there's an evolution to Jim's sound. Yeah. You know this. Like going from his tapes to now, yeah. it's quite remarkable what he's done and what grabs his ear and what he wants to incorporate into his work. It so. is fair to say, though, that there's something so like essentially Jim that, that is in those. This like goes back to yeah. what you're saying about his influence. Like I kind of sidestepped that um, because I couldn't think of any concrete examples of people either paying homage or ripping him off. Yeah. But I know it's there. Yeah. Um, I know it's there. And I, and I know that, um, you know, people are very, I forget, I did something about his record when I worked, I think for when I worked at CBC. And I think when I approached the people that were kind of in charge, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like Jim agreed to like preview a song mm. from something. Um, and it was crazy. It went nuts. Like there's an audience for Jim's work. Yeah that um, <clears throat> it was one of the biggest things that I'd ever done yeah. there. So that's telling. Like, people had a, have been clamoring for his work. And uh, so, yeah, I think he's got more mass appeal than we even think. 
Um, have you? Well, he's got the mass appeal is is pretty astounding, actually. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, I don't. I think more and more his pop music is starting to get known around the world. But uh, the one thing that I wasn't prepared for uh, was was how successful Jim really is. If you're not in that world, if you're not in the video game world, you may not know. Right. We should how say gigantic. That's right. He's been, he's been doing video game soundtracks, and that's taken him. He's won awards. He's like taken yeah. him to a whole other level. Yeah. I mean, he is he is sold more uh, from. I haven't. I don't. I couldn't tell you numbers, but from what I. Know, Jim has sold more copies of, of the Sword and Sorcery soundtrack than his albums combined. combined. Yep. Um, and uh, and what's amazing is that is that I don't know to what extent if you like his pop music you will go and love his his <clears throat> uh, uh, his soundtrack stuff. But certainly the, the people that I'm talking to from around the world they know Sword and Sorcery and then they go back and they buy everything in his back catalog. Right. Right. And. They can't believe it, and they they you know they include you know Jim over in Iceland is big, and and uh, who uh, uh, I talked to a guy in Israel, it's a big Jim Guthrie fan, and it's so I think when when people talk about influence, I think yeah maybe you're right, it's a much more subtler thing that the that the that the influence is just a level of applicability. Yeah, I mean rare. having followed him for almost 20 years and been friends with him for almost 20 years all those kind of external things i'm happy for him but they don't impact how i look at him right or view him like when he tells me something crazy has happened uh to him in terms of a vocational thing mm-hmm. i'm just like great yeah. but i know i that should be hap- like part of that earlier discussion about that explosion in like let's say 1991 yeah. let's say 2002 2003 of sort of independent culture being not only sustaining itself, but clearly outpacing the mainstream music mm-hmm. artistically and even now financially. Like it's not uncommon for indie rock records, if you will, to be the number one selling record. Yeah. Like clearly we, people like me and and you and less so Jim, but like we've been hammering away at, the population for enough time to be like, no, this is the good stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of happened. But Jim has done it in a circuitous route. Like he didn't like, yeah, weirdly, like the biggest song of his life is something he's not necessarily associated with. Right. He's just some voice on a current, like people, more people have heard Jim's music that don't even know who he is. Yeah. But at the same time, he tapped into a whole other audience that wants to know who made the soundtrack to this video game yeah. I'm playing. And I didn't know that existed. Like, for me, it's just, like, that's part of how innovative and, and um, I don't know, I don't want to say he's prescient, but he definitely has foresight yeah. as an artist. Like, I wouldn't, if he, like, I'm sure when he told me he was making video game music, I was like, is there a new Super Mario coming out? <laughs> like, is there, a, like, a Sega Genesis hockey 2013 like I didn't know but he's got his ear to the ground so I think when you when you're someone like him who's not only self-aware but very like zeitgeist culturally aware then Mm -hmm. you find places you know I I don't think it's an accident that one of Jim's um, heroes or someone he admires is Jim O'Rourke who has a similar kind of like underground genius but does all this stuff on the side scores films like makes jazz music like just does lives in Japan now. Like, he just, like, found his audience, found mm-hmm. his home. Like, actually, Jim Is that might, where Jim O'Rourke he is? He might be back. Okay. Have you been trying to track him down? No, I've just Do you want his address right now? <laughs> Basically, yeah, like, he, he... I'm just saying, I think that there's... The Jim probably has an affinity with people who 
who find things to right. do with the gifts they have, yeah. and he's been really good at that. Well, I think maybe one of my favorite Jim stories, uh, uh, talking to Stuart Gunn, who Jim yep. drummed in Stuart Gunn's band, for yep. those who don't know. Stuart Gunn, along with Colin Clark, were also Sonic Bunny, who put out Jim's first tapes. Uh, and so um, Stuart was des- uh, describing a day he was walking down the street, and he ran into Jim, and Jim had under his arm uh, a book on Beethoven that had been written for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and Stuart you know, was wondering about it, and Jim's like, yeah, no, I'm just, you know, Finding out about Beethoven, uh, and and I, I think it's incredibly telling that that Jim probably left the house not thinking that he was going to learn anything about Beethoven. Saw a book written for a nine year old, and uh, and just said that this is in my life right now, and I'm going to learn something from it. There's, there's I don't think there's any touch of embarrassment from reading no, it's a book an, about a nine year old for you know for nine year olds. Yeah. It's an important distinction. When I say Jim's apolitical, I don't necessarily mean that there's any part of him that isn't thoughtful and seeking. Like he's a yeah. he's, he's a searcher, yeah. for sure, and he wants to. He's a fan of knowledge, mm-hmm. like all of us. Well, not like no, not like all of us. Some of us are fine yeah. not to know. Jim wants to know stuff. Well, yeah, um, his his adoption of technology is is amazing. Even his ad- adoption, uh, I think, it was um, you know talking to Simon Osborne about you know hanging out with Jim and and just both picking up music at the same time. Yeah, sort of says that you know most people will get an acoustic guitar learn some chords and they'll, they'll become great, but they'll become great at the guitar. Um, Jim was a person who just kept getting instruments. And yeah. Kept... And, and, and has a little home studio yeah. that's all like mostly sort of digital computer based, but he is ahead of the curve Yeah, and he made himself, it, like he is really one of the most, he epitomizes that do it yourself aesthetic that has become a cliche to the point where you know every reality show is about doing it yourself you know build your own basement build your own cake whatever the hell um but although vanilla ice actually is going out and helping the amish right now yeah yeah yeah. i've read about that show no jim jim uh is a self-contained little unit i talked to him last night about this and how he doesn't hopefully really want to work for anyone else right you know, he yeah. wants to work for himself, and he has been. Well, and so talking about the backlash that came with Jim's success in in the commercial world, mm-hmm. I think is very interesting. Um, and I think Jim even said that there were some, you know, I think he might have done a Tim Hortons commercial that he felt a little weird about doing. But I think what people may not understand, anyone who said that someone will sell out, is that, that Jim is not selling out. Jim is Jim has a job, you know. Uh, Jim has found a way to make music. And just because that music is is used in a commercial, I think that belies the fact that that this is a guy who loves what he does, and uh, this opportunity allowed him to sit down and challenge himself. Uh, and so I think that's maybe a, like Jim. Other than making money from something, I think there's a certain challenge, like an artistic challenge, a personal challenge to writing these impactful thirty second things. Anyone who's criticized Jim for that stuff. Probably had a, a pretty comfortable perch to do it from. Yeah. <laughs> in the last, like, year and a half or whatever. No, it's been a year. I, I lost my job a year ago. Right. Working for the CBC and uh, have been in a weird spiral of doubt and yeah. financial stress since then. And have a skill set that I need to employ as best I can to mm-hmm. feed my son and wife and keep our house. Yeah. So that kind of orthodoxy that even I probably had some yeah. compulsion to be like, Jim, what are you doing? Why are you doing these ads for credit card companies? It's gone. Yeah. I think when you're hit with the reality of the situation and you you know that there's – if I can get $300 for talking about a book for 10 minutes on 
a radio station yeah. or something, uh, even if I don't care about the radio station, which in the example I actually do. But I'm just saying, like, if I can, I'm, I'm, we want to survive yeah. with what we know how to do. Yeah. So you make compromises here and there. Um, you try to be a good person. Um, Jim is a great person. Like Jim, people can question his character about that stuff, and I don't think they are anymore. That was so long ago. God, it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. But as I say, I think once you're hit with the reality of like, I got to do something with myself, yeah. then you have the right maybe to, uh, maybe after you've overcome that and figured it out, you can you can rail against people trying to make a living with the skill set they have. But I, don't, I think if you're working at some newspaper, like the Golden Mail or something, and you're shouting down at an artist like Jim for making a commercial. Was it in the Globe and Mail that... No, 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 no. no. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Like, I just picked that example. Do you want their address? Uh, I I think it's just just a website at this point, isn't it? You can Google it. They're on Front Street. Are they on Front Street? Yeah. So I think it's... Yeah. I think young idealistic Vish, punk rock Vish would have just been like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I mean, I don't... It still breaks my heart when the Jesus Lizard are in an American Express commercial. Right. But I understand it now. Like, I can separate my love of the music and the band and the people yeah. in that band from this one act that they did for, presumably, for sustainability and survival. Because we're in an age where if you're an artist, it's hard. Yeah. And, uh, or if you do something in the arts realm or creative realm, like, it's not easy anymore. Yeah. It never was easy, but it's particularly not easy now. Yeah, I think uh, the one uh, – I'm buying more music now than I ever have. I know we don't need to turn this into a PSA for uh, – for for supporting the arts, but uh, yeah, I you know I think I think getting getting a look at, at at what really goes on in people's lives and and you know how people are able to afford making music or making any kind of art, I just just want to tell people to go out there. And it's that's a, one thing about self, the, it's a selfish compulsion to say about some like for some scrappy music fan who loved Jim yeah when he made his tapes. You know, I am. I guarantee you, there are people who resented the fact that Jim moved to Toronto from Guelph. Oh, sure. I guarantee you, there's people who resent him for making those commercials. Jim has a house. Yeah. In Toronto, that he bought. I'm not going to give you the address, but he bought a house, and he is an adult. Yeah. Who has adult responsibilities, and that's the bottom line. Yeah. I don't. Those cats aren't going to capture and castrate. He does themselves. have like 45 cats yeah. and a wife. Like, I mean, there's not. I think if he did something that I really had a problem with, yeah. I would certainly talk to him about it. I just I'm, I'm past the point of having the guy gets up every day and makes music. Yeah. And people give him money for it now. And that's, that's awesome. That's the bar. That's right? all that's... we kind of wanted when we want these people to leave the yeah. city is to be successful. Like yeah. you have I'm sure he felt an obligation to people in Guelph. Mm-hmm. That, like as many people were probably grumbling. I'm sure Jim was like, I'm going to go make something of myself, improve myself, and make my city proud. Yeah. I'm sure there's a small part of him that felt that way. And he did it. Yeah. And I'm proud of him. And he's my friend. And I'm glad he's doing well. And his last record's fantastic. So I think it's great that he exists. And I, I love him to death. For all we've said, um, do you think uh, this man, this career, this context uh, deserves a book? Yeah, I think this bibliophonic series that Invisible is doing is really cool. I've read the No Means No book mm-hmm. yeah. that um, Mark, Mark Black Mark Black, yeah. Mark Black wrote, which is really great. And then I read the um, 
Wooden Stars book. Yeah, Malcolm Fraser. Yeah. Malcolm Fraser wrote, and that was really cool. And I'm, I think I was maybe supposed to write one. Sure, but I don't know what's happening. They asked me, and then I said sure, and then I, and then I followed up a couple months later, and they're like, yeah, still sure, but yeah. no, nothing. Yeah. But I think you're doing this book is great, and I think that, you know, we've been talking about an hour and a half now or something about Jim. Mm-hmm. Um. Hopefully it's been insightful and interesting to people. I think it's great that there that there are books but No Means No and The Wooden Stars and right. Jim Guthrie. So I like the series, and I think there's a lot to talk about when it comes to – I think we've covered a lot of bigger picture issues just by talking about Jim's – Is there – if you were – so let's say you were to wander into the supermarket and see a, a book about Jim Guthrie there on the rack with the new Tom Clancy uh, – uh-huh. What would you What would you hope to find in that book by picking it up? First of all, Tom Clancy is dead. Uh, the no Tom Clancy, the computer is still writing. Uh, is there someone writing his books for him? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Because it's been Tom Clancy with so and so for for quite some time. But he did die, right? He did. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, your question. More on was, that later. Your question uh, was: If I see a book in the grocery store, what? Uh, what would you hope to find in a book about Jim Guthrie? Like what? I mean, it's impossible for me to say. Like, you're asking me as someone who is um, ostensibly an expert on the guy. That's true. Yeah, you could probably. So I would, I would hope. Yeah. You know, I would look at it and just hope that it's accurate and complete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is weird. You asked me to review your book before you wrote it. No, no, I'm, I'm, because I, I wonder about what you know. Uh, like, I've read a lot of the thirty-three and a third yeah. books in preparation for this, and some of them are just terrible. Uh, you know, when you find out, you know, more and more about the, the writer and about the, the house that they were living in and, and how addicted to drugs their girlfriends were, when you really just want to find out more about what Stephen Malcolmus was like, or, you know, mm. uh, and so I think it's, I think it's interesting when we, one thing that I find with music or any kind of art writing is that it necessarily needs to include an eye because at some point this is coming through me. I, like, I love Jim Guthrie's music. And I'm coming to like Jim Guthrie, the person. Uh, that's the reason that I'm writing this book. Eventually, I found out more of a more of a greater context. That I think makes for a really interesting well, story. But you're you're touching upon a weird knot that I've been wrestling with lately, which is like, I have an interview show. Yeah, and I've been doing interviews for a long time. Mm-hmm. But at some level, at some point, I've kind of thought like, why am I, why am I doing this? The art, an artist will spend a year, two years, whatever they spend, hopefully just two weeks, yeah. making a record, you know, putting lyrics together to say something, mm-hmm. express something. And then we, in my field, get the record and we say, hey, we're not satisfied with what you said. Right. Tell us more about what this means. Yeah. And so on some level, I'm just like, why do we do this? There is so much mystery... And enigmatic energy in Jim's work mm-hmm. that I find admirable and stand alone. Like, I think it stands alone from anything he could... T- in fact, like I say that Jim and I speak for two hours. And I'm not saying that's a great two hours. Yeah. <laughs> On our, but it's an important two hours, We just though, right? express ourselves yeah. and we say whatever and we come up with ideas and we talk about our lives and we talk about <clears throat> we talk about the world. But the fact that Jim could do all that in a three-minute song... Yeah probably better yeah. than we have in two hours. I feel like my point is I think Jim and I should just call each other and sing to each other for four <laughs> minutes and that should be it. Sure. No, but I do think that, 
you know, uh, I do wrestle with that. So in terms of a book about Jim, I mean, I think he's an interesting little cat. Yeah. So I hope that, I hope that it illuminates something for the people that want to know more about him who don't, because he, he's not a high profile person. Right. But he's done a lot of important work and he's been part of a lot of important movements. He continues to be. Mm-hmm. Um, this video game thing that people like me kind of are ignoring is important. And, um, yeah. You're not ignoring it. You just don't. Well, I don't play yeah. video games. Yeah. So when he told me, as I said, I was dead serious. I'm like, I don't know what that, what world are you talking about? And then he showed me Sword and Sorcery. I'm yeah. like, wow, like this is a whole other realm of <laughs> escapism that I have not employed. Yeah. Um, have you listened to the, have you listened to the soundtrack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I have the soundtrack. Yeah. I was probably one of the, you know, luckily one of the first people to probably hear it. And yeah. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And as an extension of Jim's work, it makes sense. Yeah. But um, in terms of a medium, I didn't understand why that was so important Mm -hmm. or why he would sell thousands and thousands of copies of a soundtrack to that where, you know, the the songs that he writes, the pop songs that he writes are so rich with not only musical feeling, but like he's putting ideas across, right, in the lyrics. So it's interesting that uh, one catches on, one doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the... the uh, and maybe where the book will end uh, for me is uh, so one of the on the last page on the last page yeah the book should end when uh, the last page when the flap closes yeah <laughs> this is this never ending story all of a sudden yeah uh, so the, one of the most amazing things that I've been able to to pick up on is uh, is the extent to which uh, so it's I guess a big deal not a huge deal to the world but a big deal for the people that it's a big deal to. Uh, is uh, is Jim's music uh, is beloved the world round uh, <coughs> by by artists uh, by nerds uh, who are on their computer all day or artists who are hunched over a desk painting all day um, and and I think Jim takes a real amount of pride in that people can put his music on and get to a place where they don't hear it where it still affects them and it's still important that it's there but it just kind of it disappears so perfectly into someone's own experience but that's another that's another sign of jim's just like inherent modesty yeah um jim's not really a shoot for the moon guy no uh in some ways in terms of his practice like i think he's been i think he's always really surprised when something he makes whether Mm -hmm. it's a jingle or or a video game soundtrack or a record resonates with anyone yeah he's still surprised he doesn't understand it he's getting used to it yeah um but he doesn't really comprehend it, which is actually helpful for him. I think if you spend too much time thinking about, I mean, so many artists now, particularly the way you're, or musicians, I should say, so many musicians, because you're responsible for doing every aspect of promoting yourself, you can't, it can be difficult to be a strong artistically Mm because it's distracting to be like worried about your stupid stuff. And he kind of exists sort of a, outside of that. Like he's got a little website or whatever, but he's not so interested in 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 uh, cajoling people into loving his music. Yeah. Um, he lets people know when he's got something out. I signed up to his newsletter, and that's about it. Like you're not being, <laughs> no one is shoving Jim's stuff yeah. down anyone else's throat, which is helpful mm-hmm. in a in in a world where that's all we get. 
Well, you know, Jim, and it's funny that this is on the first tape. And from what he told me, the uh, the, the song "I Don't Want to Be a Rock Star," hmm. uh, the the pots and pans that it begins with is Jim at his night shift at McDonald's, uh, who has taken all the the sort of the hot the hot plates out and has been banging on them, saying, "I don't want to be a rock star." Um, that's been amazingly consistent. And I think it's really interesting to see the extent to which Jim is. Um, either been not interested in and I think there have been moments where he's actually shied away from a certain amount of exposure or a certain amount of there's uh, humility in, yeah. in his work and there's humility in him so it comes across so you you were with Jim at the at the Junos right mm-hmm. so uh, now more than ever was nominated for a Juno in 2004 right yeah yeah in, um, in Winnipeg right um, how how did how did Jim feel about being nominated for Juno and going to uh, an awards ceremony? I think he was really honored, and we yeah. had we had the best time. Yeah, there were some drinks there. I understand. Yeah, I think they drank. Yeah, um, yeah. That we got to any time you get to go to any city with a group of your friends. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it's like a family vacation, and in a good way. Like yeah. you're with your cool family. And we had a great, great time. Like we we went and checked out Winnipeg. Basically, I think all of us for the first time. I don't know if any. Well, no, Jim would have been there before. I might have been there before. Anyway, I have relatives there. We just had ourselves a time. Like we, you know, it was ridiculous. The kind of um, I've not been to the Oscars or the Grammys or whatever, but I know that the Junos is the Canadian. It's modeled after that yeah. stuff. So you had the big ballroom galas and jam sessions and parties and mansions and <laughs> and like the elaborate award gala dinner. Like yeah. you had all this excess that has nothing to do with anything that any of us were interested in, but we indulged in it yeah. because we're like, you know, when are we going to get this again? Exactly. Ever? Yeah. Why would we do this again? Let's just see what it's like. And uh, some of it was ridiculous, yeah, and uh, and and funny, and humor. Like it was just being part of, again, just like all of us suddenly being at the most mainstream thing that this country has in terms of its music industry, and having it at a time be both completely tone deaf and completely plugged <laughs> in to what was really going yeah. on, as far as we were concerned, was fascinating. Yeah, and I, I don't, I, I forgot about that trip in some ways, and it was great. It was really fun. Now, in uh, maybe just ask you about the Canadian music in general. Uh, you know, I uh, coming from the the writing world, uh, it's usually about like one degree of of separation. It's you know, like I know somebody who knows Alice Munro's phone number, and I feel really happy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, w- uh, being involved in that um, is Canada remarkably small in terms yes. of music. Yeah. Hundred percent. All right. It's different than than uh, than the, the the United States music industry. Then is it? I can't speak to what it's really like there. Right. I mean, I think there are different communities and different scenes and all that yeah. stuff. The same way there are here, but this country is yeah, right. very small. Like I, if I write a negative B. A. Johnson review, <laughs> uh, even if it doesn't run in print, right? CKDU in Halifax will print it off, right? Off of an online site, tape it to the wall. And then when I end up in Halifax, 15 to 20 people will accost me hmm. 
being like, how dare you say that's about B.A. Johnson? Because there were swarmings in Halifax when I was there. Swarmings? Swarmings, yeah. Kids were being attacked by uh, by gangs of kids. Oh, well, kids. that's the is whole— that, Is that music criticism that's related? That's a whole that... other unfortunate—yeah, I don't yeah. know what's going on in that city. But no, I mean, I, I'm i telling you, it's such a small place that— It's such a small place that—and we all get around a little yeah. bit. Like, we all get to Newfoundland, and we all get to Dawson City, and— it's one of the reasons I think some of us are so nice and kind yeah. uh, in public as much as we can be because uh, eventually you will run into people. It's not out of fear. It's just out of like, I, I'm, it doesn't always happen for me. Right. I say, and I I'm, try to be as honest as I can. And, and I mean, I try to be as honest as I can in my criticism, which includes not writing about stuff I don't like, which right. is not quite that honest. Not writing about stuff you don't like is not honest? I'm not – yeah, if I don't – if I if I get like a record that I don't right. like and I don't say anything about it, I don't know if that's me being honest. Um, I'm actually the same way. I don't I, – I don't – I think I wrote one review in my life and I don't think I'll ever really write one again. People – it makes people but, uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. I like – I kind of got into music because I wanted to write about the stuff I was most enthusiastic right. about, not the stuff that I didn't like. Yeah. Why would anyone spend mental energy – cutting someone down um why not just ignore it yeah. um but that at the same time that's not being a critic that's being a weird music diplomat right but are you would you consider yourself a music critic well i've been put in that place i okay. mean i write for exclaim and right. pitchfork and um i don't know whoever else are huffing and like i write yeah well who do i write music criticism for? i guess it's for pitchfork and exclaim primarily yeah. but yeah yeah i guess i do but i think you can be successful at thoughtfully celebrating good music i mean i don't I, it's no no of, I, yeah. I, and that's what i'm saying like, yeah I, that's just personally i i think that um i don't know how this got well how's this about jim by the way we got to wrap up okay so let's just say any any last words about about jim guthrie <laughs> any, any any funny jim stories well i think i've told a couple um no i don't know jim is uh any fun you talked about honesty earlier yeah the first time I ever met Jim, within minutes, he told me he was in this horrible car accident. Yep. I, uh, it's kind of a notable part of his life. Um, he was thrown from a car. He was mm-hmm. unconscious. He was in the hospital. <clears throat> I had known him maybe 15 minutes before he told me this story. He was thrown out of his shoes as well. He didn't... Uh, it was he, a bad situation. Yeah. He almost died. Yeah, wear your seatbelt, I think, is the... Yeah, and, and for a while, he uh, didn't wear seatbelts yeah. even after. I don't know what was going on with him. But when you talk about honesty, like, and frankness, that's what he was like. Yeah. So uh, that's what he is like. He will just tell you some stuff yeah. out of nowhere. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of funny stories, I mean, I can't. There's tons. I just Sure, yeah, I understand. You know, yeah. it's all a blur. He's a fun guy to be around. Yeah. We always have fun. So, yeah, he's great, and I'm glad you're doing this book, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Well, thank you for having me on to to, to uh, turn the tables on you. Yeah, I thanks. Hope, for... I hope you enjoyed being a guest. Uh, yeah, I did. All right. I did, actually. We're going to play a song by Jim right now that Jim requested, and I think it's fitting um, uh, for the conversation. It's from the album Takes Time, and it's called Before and After. What do you think, Andrew? Uh, I think that's a good one. Okay, we're going to do that right now, if all goes well. Andrew, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Vish.
Thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. 
You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.